when I went out on the road for next door, most recently, it was like, what are you doing? We're raising $100 million. Great. What's your valuation? Tw- $2 billion. Um, How did you get there? Okay, here's what our revenue is. Here's what I think a reasonable multiple is. Boom. And, you know, it's their, it's their job, actually, to decide if that's reasonable. Yep. But I find a lot of women will say all that, like, and then they'll be like, but, you Back know, but, yeah. if you, but if you really, but, you know, if we only want to do 50 and we could do it, you know, and I'm like, shh. Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. This was such a pleasure. Truth be told, Anna and I, we may have got our fangirl on. If you haven't heard of Sarah Fry, she's one of the most highly regarded execs in Silicon Valley. She's been the right hand of Jack Dorsey, who is, of course, the co-founder and CEO of Twitter. She was the CFO for Square, a mobile payment solution, and she's now the CEO of Nextdoor. Nextdoor is the fastest growing social network, which focuses on connecting an individual with their neighbour and community. It operates currently in over 11 countries, is rapidly expanding and is valued at over $2 billion. For most of us with businesses or ideas, Sarah's experience and knowledge far exceeds our own. However, the insights she provides are both relatable and aspirational. In addition to her incredible success in the world of tech, she also has a side hustle, Ladies Who Launch, which like Nextdoor is about facilitating and building authentic and trusted networks. It's no surprise then that she's from a small rural farming community in Northern Ireland. And this is where we started our conversation. Sarah, (laughs) you grew up in Northern Ireland. I did. On a farm. Uh, kind of, in a little village, but my whole family were farmers. So what were you like growing up? Were you entrepreneurial? Um, and yes and no. Mm-hmm. I was definitely that kid that was very curious about everything. And probably where the entrepreneurial piece would have been in place is my mom and dad were always fundraising for something. So mm-hmm. we had the sponsored walks, the church jumble sale. And I was entrepreneurial in that I could always come up with a new creative thing we could do to raise money. So I remember doing a sponsored readathon at school, which frankly was my idea of heaven. Get to read books all day. <laughs> and, you know, you had to walk down the street and get sponsored to do that. So I guess that was entrepreneurial, but for a good cause. So from farm life to Silicon Valley, it's quite, it's quite a, a, a bit of a stretch. So you have a pretty impressive resume before you even, you know, got into tech. You um, worked at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. You studied at Oxford and Stanford. Do you think that that um, sort of career set you up well to thrive in a startup environment in Silicon Valley? What did you learn in that in that process? I mean, yes and no. So I think definitely having an engineering background really helps because it's just, a, I think, a way of thinking. It's got both the logic and then the mm. creative side, um, side by side, right? The great thing about an engineering degree and an engineering background is you kind of are given a problem and it's like, go at it, like go solve it. And there's no 
perfectly right answer in a lab and all sorts of interestingly serendipitous things can happen when you're in that lab process. Um, I think at McKinsey, the great training I got is actually I worked in South Africa mm. and almost everything I worked, I worked mostly for mining companies because I had that background, but I worked on a lot of organi- what were called organizational studies, which are really all about people. And so when I later went to Square, my first kind of real startup, mm. I feel like I was using a lot of the things I learned at McKinsey at that very early stage of my career about how do you build out people organizations? How do you think about recruiting the right people, training them, grooming them to be the best they can be? So there was a lot of learning from that stage of my career that kind of came back later Mm. in startup life. You mentioned uh, Square, which was kind of your first foray into startup life. We're so interested to hear about that. But before we do, um, I think one of the really interesting things that has been common among a lot of the people that we've interviewed is this moment where they've had to take the leap and kind of risk their career and their livelihood to, you know, forge a new path. What was that moment for you? Yeah. So it was a building moment. So mm-hmm. I went to Goldman um, out of business school at Stanford. And I remember my uh, the dean of the school, who was a great mentor and friend, he was so horrified that I was going into like what he saw as this big, stable corporate job. He's like, you are meant to go build, da, 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 da. And I was like, look, Garth, like I am broke. So I need like <laughs> a job that pays real money, not like funny equity money. And I need a visa. So I was an immigrant, remember, mm-hmm. to the US. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that original job would be a year to two, pay off my debts, um, figure out, you know, how to stay in the U.S. I met this wonderful man who I married, um, but had to figure out all my visa issues. So this is going to be my two-year, you know, tour of duty. And then mm. I would go do this great startup build thing. And frankly, I stayed at Goldman for 11 years, um, partially because they always kept challenging me, which is a good learning now when you build companies. Like, how do you get people to stay for a decade of their career? And Silicon Valley's really become this whole, like, you know, oh, I've been here for two years. I, I need to move on. And so I really think a lot about how do you inspire people to constantly feel like a shift is going on in their personal growth and their career growth, but they stay with the company for long periods of time. Um, So 11 years. And then, you know, what really happened was a kind of a crisis of belief. So the financial crisis happened. Mm. I realized I didn't really believe in the why I was at a place like Goldman Sachs. I had a really hard time. My parents would be like, what exactly do you do? And I couldn't really explain it in a way that I was proud of it. Mm. And so in some ways, that made it easier to take that big leap of faith and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, this decade-long career that I'm actually pretty good at, like I could continue to do more and more and more. I'm going to, you know, literally hang up my horseshoes. Like I I retired from the firm. I was like, I'm done. I'm going to go find that next thing. And it was completely terrifying. Like I remember waking up the morning after I was like officially done. On the one hand, I was like, great, what am I going to do today? And I was like, I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to go to a yoga class. I'm going to like, you know, I had like 40 things planned. But I was also like, oh, shit, like, I don't have a job and I'm not sure I'm qualified to do anything. Like, you get all these imposter syndrome moments where you're like, I have no skills. No one will ever employ me again. So... Yeah, it was like a moment of freedom, but terror all kind of mixed together. Mm. Mm. And interesting that you, you know, before you went into corporate world, you had that spark of an idea that, you know, you could absolutely pursue that and you didn't. And for 10 years you didn't. I know. (laughs) But then having that personal crisis and going, okay, what's my vision? What's the, you know, what's my passion and what do I want to pursue? And you ended up doing that, which is great. Yeah. And you kind of realize like Mm. there's... 
there's so much that goes on in people's lives. It's hard to judge, right? You know, mm. no one would know. I, I worried about money because I grew sure. up with not very much and you had to pay the bills. I worried about being seen to be successful, right? There's that good girl instinct that I think I've carried with me my whole life. I talk a lot about like the things I wish I'd do differently would be not be so perfection oriented because mm. this mm. concept of perfection, I think, is a real hurdle for a lot of women. Um, and then, you know, don't forget, I had two kids in that era as yeah. well. Yeah. And, you know, you you are working incredibly hard, but it helps if you kind of know your stuff. I'm like, yeah. okay, I might be working silly hours, but at least I know I can do this versus if I go do that new thing and I've mm. still got these two babies, frankly, look mm. after, how do I make that all work? So women have a lot going on in some of the the big career movement parts of Mm. most people's lives, we often are having kids and so on as well. So there's a lot to balance. Absolutely. The considerations personally, professionally, (laughs) all of that financially. Yeah. Yep. So how did the opportunity with Square come about? Did you know Jack at the time? Talk to us about that <laughs> that that moment. So it is, I did not know Jack. So interestingly, I, I knew a lot of folks in the tech world because mm-hmm. I had worked in a bank and I covered tech. I was like, I headed the tech group for Goldman, but I didn't know consumer tech very well, which is where Twitter had kind of been founded. So you know, it actually was randomly a headhunter, a recruiter reached out to me and we had this crazy conversation, which to this day he loves to remind me of, where he asked, I can't even remember what question he asked, but it was something to do with like, what's the craziest thing you've ever done or your craziest job? And I I told him like, totally truthfully, like sometimes the truth is like more crazy than like the stuff you could make up. <laughs> I told him about like working on my uncle's farm and having to help with like sheep shearing and how like, I, this Brilliant. will speak to all Australians right totally. now, but yeah. literally where, you know, had to help wrestle sheep to the ground. <laughs> and I don't even know. I mean, I'm kind of mortified in hindsight that I even said that. That is not a professional answer, right? But it, you know, sometimes the truth is the best thing to say. And um, and that really, like, with this headhunter, he was like, "That is the best answer I've ever gotten to this question ever, ever." It's memorable. And he's like, "I think you might be the one because Jack." You know, is just I have mm. like shown him every CFO in Silicon Valley, and he doesn't want to hire any of them. I think you and he might really hit it off because you think about things really differently, and that that was true. <laughs> so he arranged for Jack and I to have a coffee. Um, I remember it was like a Sunday morning. We met at the local um, Blue Bottle Coffee in San Francisco, and it was supposed to be an hour long meeting. And we literally we chatted for about three hours, and we didn't mm. kind of get out of our childhoods. Um, it was a very personal interview. It wasn't mm. like a you know it wasn't kind of like a normal interview because Jack wants to understand who you are. Mm. Um, and, you know, it all started there. It was amazing. So can you take us behind the scenes of what a Silicon Valley startup looks like? Because I think there's a lot of mystery mm. around, you know, tech startups, <laughs> like in that, you know, city. It's chaos. What was, <laughs> yeah. what was it like in the early days when you started? Um, my husband has this great phrase. He calls like all companies Swiss cheese. He's like, on the outside, <laughs> you all look so good. And inside there's all these holes. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you walk knowledge. in the door of Square and at the time we're about 200 people. The reader was really the only product we had. It was literally the first reader that dropped yeah. into the headphone jack of the of the phone and you know we we're trying to do crazy stuff like move money around in a highly regulated industry and you know i think the thing that 
kind of when I go back in time and think through that period, some of it was the great of being, you know, I often say it's good to hire people that actually don't have experience mm-hmm. because they're completely unbounded by reality. And they don't know that the thing that they're trying to do is just ridiculous. <laughs> so they just keep going. Um, and actually, even here in Australia, um, I'm going to meet him for a drink tonight. Our country manager here, our first employee in Australia, I remember showing up and it was his living, he literally worked out of his living room. So this whole idea of like corporate that we have in our heads of how like companies work. I mean, the reality of startups is half the time you're working out of a cafe, you're working out of someone's mm-hmm. living room. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we have more of, um, you know, kind of multidisciplinary use spaces or whatever the word is that you use for those now. Mm. But I mean, even like five, six years ago, those weren't really a thing. And mm. so there's just a lot of like hacking it together. Yeah reaching for kind of this incredible thing and being tenacious. Like you just never let anyone say no to you. And in fact, Jack's whole pitch to me was like, I need you to be the person that says yes. Like CFOs traditionally are the people that say no. Mm -hmm. You need to show me how to say yes. And it can be yes and or yes Yes. But, but. <laughs> um, but show us what would help you say yes to something. And, yeah. you know, that began a, an incredible kind of almost seven-year run. Like we took the company from 200 people to, over, like when I left, we were 3,500. The company's still growing. The pace of, you know, a very fast thing. Um, took a public. I mean, it really was an amazing ride. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, you did, you grew that exponentially. It's quite insane. And it's probably a slightly, it's a bit of a big question, but how did you drive that astronomical growth at Square over the time that you were there? Like what, what, what were some of like, I guess the growth pillars that you focused on personally? Yeah. So I think one of the first things um, I learned there was having a strong purpose or mission that mm-hmm. kind of rises above the day-to-day. So at Square, we talked about economic empowerment. That mm-hmm. was what we stood for. We wanted to create the bank of the future, which is really an inspirational thing mm-hmm. to want to stand behind. Like what you realize in real life, people don't want to come work for a point-of-sale system company. And it's something I really learned from Jack because he's great at kind of taking the maybe the more mundane, but turning it into a purpose. Um, and we'll talk about that when we come to next door. But I think it's really important for leaders to be able to inspire people to go above and beyond. Like they're really there for something that's impacting the world from a purpose standpoint. Um, And that helps actually when you go talk to your other stakeholders. So Mm -hmm. maybe it's the regulator that you're going to talk to, or it might be a partner that you're kind of in it for this bigger mission. And often they'll join because they're excited about the bigger mission. The tactical stuff might be more mundane, but purpose-driven. Second thing I took from Square is um, how important it is to have great design within Mm -hmm. your company. And and when you build products, starting from a really insights-driven approach, Mm -hmm. so talking to your customers. And that sounds like so, I think, obvious, but you'd be shocked how many people Mm -hmm. build the thing inside their own four walls. It's the thing (laughs) they came up with overnight. You know, particularly I find like a lot of guys sit around and code software Mm. for this thing that they're sure the world needs because they have thought it up, but they've never actually talked to a single customer to say, well, would this really, like, is this a problem you're actually facing? Is it your most pressing problem? Like, it might be a problem, but in the pantheon of problems, it's not Mm. even making like the top 100. So Mm -hmm. you're kind of creating, you're kind of a product in search of a problem or a product in search of a um, a customer base. So very insight driven. And then lots of like beautiful design. Like I used to think design was more, 
you know, almost the, like the color scheme or the logo mm. or the beautiful font or mm. whatever. But great design is, is just so inherent to the bill that you have that you don't even notice it's happening. Right? Payments is a really complicated space. Um, it carries incredible trust, right? You, mm. You're giving, you're moving money around, right? I just said the start of my career, I had no money. And so you really feel that emotionally. Mm, yeah. And yet here you were persuading people to hop in the back of a taxi, for example, hand their credit card to a driver they've never met in their life, see that person swipe it through something on their cell phone, and you would be okay with that. And you really so had to feel beautiful, natural, easy, and that the design was a huge part of how the product itself unfolded. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, Square's a pretty complicated product because it does so many things. And again, it's the same thing. How do you not confuse your customer? Um, how do you just help it mm-hmm. unfold the way they need, it, need to use mm-hmm. it? I've got a question about product development because it's something that's come up in quite a few discussions mm-hmm. that we've had. The dual approach, like do you iterate and test and continuously improve versus um, launching a product that is, you know, close to perfect? to market. We've spoken to a few different tech founders who have (laughs) different opinions on that. I'd love to know your view. Yeah, I'm definitely in the iterate test, lots of A-B tests, like endless Mm A-B testing. Look, I think there is a little bit the um, myth of Silicon Valley, you know, that Steve Jobs woke up one day and just created (laughs) the iPhone. And I, I think it's a Jobs quote, but, you know, if you ask your customers what they want, you'll get the buggy whip, right? So you, they'll never tell you they want to drive a car. They'll still be iterating on the horse and carriage. Mm-hmm. I think there are very, very few examples of that. So they are not the norm. The reality yeah. of most products are you start on one thing, you you go out, you get your insights, you build, you take it back. The customer's like, oh, not really what I was looking for. You might give it to two different populations. You kind of watch how they hack the product, right? I'm a huge believer in um, Scott Cook, who was the founder of Intuit, did these things called Follow Me Homes. Sounds a little stalkerish, but literally <laughs> he would follow his customers home and watch his customer in action with accounting software, right, of all things. Yeah. But he could see what they were doing. Right. like, And he would see, well, we built it to do this and you're not finding that button or you're not finding that part of the app. And so you're creating this note over here where we've created this whole other section for you. And so it was like a a thing that a lot of Silicon Valley now has embraced, this idea of of insight-driven, follow-you-home type of of outcomes. Mm. And so I think you need to be careful not... Sometimes you do need the big bang, like the truly out of the blue moment. And so you need to allow space in your company for that sort of creativity to happen. But I think you can't, I think the former should be 80% of your product development and the latter maybe more like a 20%. I'll give you another great example, Slack. So I sit on the board of Slack, right? Slack started as, you know, effectively a gaming company Mm. and they had built this game and to help the people who were gaming, they had a a productivity, you know, a way to message Mm. on the back end. And so it's so ironic that the actual gaming thing went nowhere, tiny spec. And, but the messaging platform on the back end became... What is today like a $20 billion, whatever company of helping the world, you know, with where the world of work is going. Yeah. I think that's a really good example of you have to remain open to pivot, I guess, and follow, follow the lead of the customer, I guess, really. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Do you ever find tension between maybe the two teams? The, you, you've got the design team that's trying to make the product look beautiful and then you've got more of the kind of um, the product development functional side of things going on. How do you bring out the best in those teams yeah. working together to create a product that, that works and looks great? So I actually try to flip my teams and I guess now next door my company mm. to work people around more full stack. And so what I mean by that is um, instead of having like a product layer, a design mm-hmm. layer, an insights layer, development layer, instead we think about like what are the pillars of the product that we need to build for that period of time. So we have member experience as a pillar, local business is a pillar, um, international growth is a pillar. And then each of those pillars has a full stack team that goes from deep in the engineering org, um, literally right down to the platform, eng, design, insights, um, product. And then I actually try to push like even communications, marketing, Mm. so that it's very full Mm. stack. And I like that because first of all, people can make interesting trade-offs. So at Square, we also use this full stack sense. So if you were the the general manager or the PM of a, of a pillar, you could say, I am willing to lose an extra 20 basis points in risk because I want more people to join, even though I know I'm going to get more bad actors. But that's actually a better use of spend than spending on marketing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, in Nextdoor's case, right, in that full stack team, um, someone on the member experience side can do a similar sort of thing to say it is more important for us to invest on trust and make sure that when we do verification, it's done in a really strong way because that's actually a better marketing tool than creating some marketing campaign, Mm. right? The most important thing we can tell our neighbors is when you speak in the neighborhood, it is just your neighbors who are Mm. there listening and responding to Mm -hmm. you. So that's the way you get away from that tension because they see themselves more as a single team focused on the eyes on the prize. Like I need to get this thing going rather than, and I need to, you know, I'm, I'm in the, the product development group and like you're in design and we're at odds with one another. So full stack the teams. Mm, love that. We do want to get into next door, but I just want to mm. ask a question off the back of that. How do you ensure collaboration across pillars if, you know, mm. the stacks are relatively um, siloed or, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's the downside of yeah. pillars, right? Yeah. Is that then you can actually end up with like you're building four things that don't talk to one another. And so mm. your product gets more Frankenstein-y because, you know, people can kind of tell. Like one thing I think a lot about is can the customer see the seams of your organization? Mm. So can they tell that this part of the organization worked on this? And, the, you know, because often it'll come in through support and the product team will be like, oh, yeah, no, well, we didn't make that decision. The trust and safety team made that decision. And I'm always like, no, there should be no seam. It all, this issue belongs to all of us. Um, that's where actually I would say in, in Nextdoor's case, we're probably using the design team for that because in the end, I want to make sure, and you could say it's the engineering, like pick your poison. In mm-hmm. our case, we're very design-led. So we want to make sure that in the end, the the kind of the head of design gets to see all of the pillars coming together. Right. And she, along with my head of product, actually, um, you know, we regularly do a check-in to kind of make sure the whole app feels, has the look and feel of the same consistent yeah. app. And it's yeah. it's not perfect because some pillars get a little ahead of others, mm-hmm. um, even in look and feel. Like as we right now are doing a lot to kind of upgrade how the app feels, make it more modern. Some teams can move faster than others because mm. maybe they don't have as much legacy. And, you know, for a period of time, you're like, is it okay 
Is it a weird customer experience or do we just have to live with it? Or do you actually, it means pains you, but you're like, do you hold back on the new innovation because you just need everyone to kind of lift together Catch at up. the same time? Yeah. 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 So can you tell us a little bit about Nextdoor? What, mm-hmm. what is the app? Because some listeners might, might not yeah. know or have mm. experienced it before. So can you give us a bit of a, a lowdown? Sure. So Nextdoor is the local private network for yeah. your neighbourhood. Yeah. Um, founded on the idea, I mean, from a purpose, we talked about the importance of purpose. So our purpose is to empower neighbours everywhere to build stronger local communities. But the founders originally read um, a, a survey from the Pew Institute that said, you know, that very few at the time they were looking at the US, very few Americans knew the name of their neighbour or knew a mm. single neighbour. Um, and that that breakdown in community ties was really hurting um, just how we all function as a society and leading to things like more social isolation, more polarization. Um, This is a place where I think tech has some accountability Mm -hmm. and lack of Mm -hmm. civic engagement. So it's, it's hard to get together and effectively help, you know, I was just at a neighbor meetup yesterday um, and they were talking about how all the bus routes had gotten um, taken out of their neighborhood and it was really hard on the community. And so they'd all rallied on next door to talk to the local council and they'd gotten now one bus route back. So the first was to help neighbors get to know each other. Second thing is to stay informed. So what's going on Mm -hmm. in my neighborhood? And it can be everything from like, what's that noise? In my neighborhood, it's always like, was that an earthquake? Um, It's like the first place I go is next door because then people will be like, like, yes, look, here's the U.S. survey. Yes, yeah, there was. Yeah. Um, through to, you know, what's the great event going on in my neighborhood yeah. this weekend? Um, uh, you know, this morning uh, we were with a, a group in Alphington in Victoria talking about like the local bowling club. So interesting, lawn bowls is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and yeah. they were getting their lawn bowling club back on its feet. And then the final thing is help me get things done. And mm-hmm. so as a working mom, like that's where I found next door long before I joined mm-hmm. the company. It was just this classic thing of like uh, the trusted recommendation of a neighbor for someone I'm probably going to invite into my home, like a plumber or a babysitter, is something I'm never going to Google search for because God knows what will show up at my house. (laughs) Um, And those are the things where you don't need a hundred recommendations, but one or two are super helpful. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating company. Mm-hmm. You know, we were doing a bit of research and we discovered that next door, it's a pretty crazy story. You are valued at $2.2 billion. Um, I'd love to know how the company earns money. Yeah, it's a great question. So I started out by talking about our purpose um, and it's great to get behind a purpose-driven company, but it's all for naught if you can't actually make it sustainable. So we can't live off VC funding. We need to actually build a company that has sustainable revenues, margins, and hence cash flows that you Mm. can then reinvest to continue to grow. And that's how you create great global impact. So from a next door perspective, we make money in today, technically four ways, I guess. But the first is in our larger countries. So we're in 11 countries. I probably should have said that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. 11 countries, 250,000 neighborhoods. We do have um, advertising in place. So US and UK. So larger national advertisers that want to act very local, Mm. local. Love the platform because they can target neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, A lot of their calls to action, CTAs, are very much getting people from online to offline. So a great example would be Target, um, who I know is here in Australia. Mm -hmm. Target 
government ran a campaign for back to school where they said, hey, moms, bring come into a local Target. We're going to do an arts and crafts class for an hour for your kids. While they're busy, you can do, get your back to school shopping done. So that's a classic. Needs to be hyper local because you're not going to drive more than like 10 miles to your local Target. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, very targeted around moms with kids. Um, and it's a great, like actually a great way for moms to get to know each other. So we love that sort of advertising mm-hmm. too because it feels very mm-hmm. community building. Um, second way, which I'm more excited about for the long run, is local business. So we just spent a lot of time talking about Square. I spent a lot of time looking at small local businesses. Um, and so local businesses are still in this conundrum of how to spend their marketing money. They know they need to market, right? The world is moving a lot online. It's actually a retail crisis out there if you read any of the, the stats. And it's really tough for a lot of local businesses. So what they need is access to new customers and upsell to current customers. And who better than the, the their most important customers, which are the people who live around them? Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., we have, well, actually here in Australia, we have local business pages, which are free. So you can sign up and get your page so you can be found and you can accrue a recommendation, for example. And in the U.S., with that page, you can now put a local deal into the newsfeed. So I could offer, like my newsfeed right now, I have um, Fisherman Don, who goes fishing every Friday, comes back with all sorts of goodies, and he offers 10% off people coming through next door. I have a painter in the mix. I have a dog walker. So kind of very classic local businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, And we think this is a much better outcome for them than just mass marketing. And they would have marketed maybe in the local paper before, and those Mm -hmm. are all kind of dying off. Mm -hmm. Third way is um, what you would call public services in this country. So we don't charge police departments, fire departments, or anything like that, um, because we think it's a really important community PSA for them to get their word out. But we find there's utilities that are for profits. So like the local electricity company, Mm. the local um, ISP, um, you know, that's giving your internet connection. Those folks also really benefit from being able to target by neighborhood their message. Like in some cases, you might have that internet connection available. Like when 5G finally comes to Australia, it'll come in waves. So you might want to tell one neighborhood, 5G's here. And then you might in another neighborhood say, 5G's coming. Do you want to learn more? Um, So they're paying. Um, And then... The, the fourth way is local experts will sponsor a neighborhood. So a local expert might be a real estate agent, might be a local contractor, but they'll actually kind of put their name, we call it a top hat, on top of a roll-up around things like real estates. So that way they're getting their brand out there. Mm. So how, how are you acquiring these um, businesses and mm-hmm. brands in such a hyper-localized sort yeah. of community and way? So I think this is one of the total secret sauces of <laughs> Nextdoor. So what What's happening is for most people who've tried to build local business businesses, Mm. they have to go out and acquire them, like do Google SEO or whatever it is. Ours is a little different. So what happens is I will put a post, like if I'm on my local next door, I might say, hey, I just moved into the neighborhood. What's a great place to get your hair done? Or, um, hey, I have young kids. What's a great place to, um, you know, is there a local arts and crafts store to go to? And what will happen is you'll respond and say, you should go to Sarah's hair salon. She's fantastic and she's great for color. So you get like a lot of mm-hmm. actual mm-hmm. local, it's mm-hmm. like a really personalized response. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so those recommendations accrue to that business. So by the time the business comes and claims their business page, which we pre-populate, mm. often they like, they're like, oh my 
God, this is like a warm bath. Like, <laughs> when did this happen that you accrued all these recommendations? So in the U.S., it's literally about 14, 15 million businesses now wow. have had a recommendation on the platform. In Australia, one in five posts is a recommendation. Right. So it's it's building. So what's great is we do need to get the word out to local businesses to say, hey, this exists. Come find it. But usually neighbors tell them. So yeah. it's a great word of mouth yeah, way yeah, to yeah. build the business model, which is a little orthogonal to the, yeah. the community build, but yet still a really important part of that community build. Yeah. Mm. So then I guess my next question is, how do you acquire those neighbours? Mm. How do you get, yeah. how do you get yeah. in front of those new customers yeah. in new communities that might not even have any idea what next door is? Yeah, that is the real hard lift. Mm. That, yeah. that, now <laughs> you're getting to the thing that, you know, we spend huge amounts of energy and time yeah. and stress on. So, um, you know, first of all, when someone puts this, I mean, we have to kind of find that first um, community activist person who's like, oh, there's this platform and kind of sounds right for us. And that is a cold start problem. And frankly, mm. there's not a super scalable way. Like I, we have a country manager in Australia. She's out and about all the time finding those leads. And then usually leads will know leads will know leads. So it kind of proliferates. They put the stake in the ground. They can then send something we call neighbor-to-neighbor invitations. So you get like a letter in the mail that says, hey, this new thing called Nextdoor just crept up in your neighborhood. I'm using it. Here's the sort of things you can do on the platform. So it's it's very word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it kind of self-propagates. But that costs us money because that's paid Mm -hmm. marketing, right? Got to send a piece of paper in the mail. Um, the other way is top down, right? So once you start getting that grassroots bottoms up, then you got to do a lot of earned media, right? That's the other thing I've learned a lot in startup life is that you're always trying to find the way to find the right partnership or the right media mm-hmm. play to get your message out there. Yeah. And, you know, one one story I love from, um, uh, we will talk about it, I'm sure, Ladies Who Launch is my nonprofit, but I interviewed Joe Malone, smelly candle yeah. lady, right, yeah. in London, and and she had this, she was talking about like guerrilla marketing. And, and when she launched New York, she hired these gorgeous models to walk around New York, like all young 20-sums <laughs> with like 20 bags in each hand that said Joe Malone. And for like a month, they just walked around New York and people would stop them and be like, what's in what's all your on? bags? <laughs> and so by the time she opened her first store, there was a line around the block. And she did that because she had no marketing money. Mm. And it was just a guerrilla technique because it didn't cost her that much, frankly, to pay a bunch of models who all needed some work um, to do that. Very different from trying to do like a billboard in Times Square. Absolutely. And I think um, startups are just like that, right? You are, you look for the partners, like we met yesterday with the Coalition to End Loneliness. Nextdoor is a great platform mm, yeah. for people to fight social isolation. We met with the e-safety commissioner in Sydney because we are trying to do a lot of safety by design in the platform. And so the more we can get advocates and influencers talking about us, it means that when people get that little flyer in the mail, instead of being like, what the hell is this? Or is that a scam? They've kind of heard it top down as well as bottoms Mm -hmm. up. And you just see the flywheel start, right? Today in Australia, almost 80% of all the households in Australia is now in a live next door neighborhood. And that's happened in just a year. Wow! But it's, you know, you just literally have to go neighborhood by neighborhood. There's no magic to circumvent that. Wow. Have there been any kind of acquisition strategies that you've employed that have really been successful, Mm -hmm. like really taken off? Um, So something that we've done, I want to bring here to Australia, in the UK, and then it kind of 
hopped the pond, they call it, like it fed across to France and then done into Spain, was a campaign in the holiday period, actually, which was the idea of hello neighbor. And so it was a challenge, like on next door, do you take the challenge that you will knock on the door of a neighbor <laughs> at some point in the next four weeks and just do a check-in? And we could see, like it started in London. And so people were like, I'm taking the next door challenge, like hello neighbor. And, you know, we, and we again, it's where we use partnerships. So we used like, we worked with um, a lot of folks focused on the elderly, for example, who mm-hmm. might've lost a spouse that year. But we also did it for younger people who might be fine, particularly people get lonely at points in life. Like when they first go to college is a big one. Actually, often when they first have a child, because you get very stuck in your house. I remember that. Um, And then particularly as you actually, when you get divorced and then finally, as you get older and, you know, your your friends and, and your spouse or whatever may pass on. And so we particularly targeted those categories and that became its own little viral meme. And I said it hopped the pond, like it went from hello neighbor in France it was, it's going to be a terrible French accent, ma porte est ouverte, so my door is open. Um, Spain, I can't remember what they called it, so don't ask me, but it was somewhere in the vein of my, my door is open. And then the Netherlands, I came back up to the Netherlands. So wow. this year in Australia, we're going to try to do something actually with, actually with more of academic research. So we will do it in the, uh, after the holiday period, because we don't want to like effectively dirty the data. Because um, naturally people tend to have heightened loneliness in the mm. holiday time frame. Yeah. And so we'll do it in January, February um, as a way, first of all, to see academically is next door having an impact because that would be good for then getting the message out as yeah. to the why. Um, but also it's just important. It comes back to purpose. Like if you believe yeah. you're here to make an impact on the world, you better make sure it's actually happening and you're not just telling yourself a story. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, community is so critical and there is, I guess, an argument that you know, our generation are connected online Mm -hmm. a fair bit. You know, Mm -hmm. we have Facebook, which allows us to create community or connect with people around the globe. You know, the idea of of knowing your neighbour is probably more um, important or I know that my parents, you know, they they know their neighbours, they connect with them. Yeah. Is there a risk that like our generation, is there a risk that our generation, you know, may not understand the concept of next door and, you know, don't want to connect so closely, especially if we're traveling the world, we're working in different Mm -hmm. locations. Is there a bit of a disconnect there? And, you know, how are you mitigating that risk? Yeah. I mean, I really hope that there isn't because Mm -hmm. I think what you'll find is... Um, like one of the reasons why I think we talk about things like a loneliness epidemic mm, is yeah. because people have gotten caught, caught up in online social. So, you know, Facebook is a network of your friends. Mm. It might be very, you know, the person you went to high school with. So it's way back, you know, in my case, only 10 years ago, but uh, joking. <laughs> uh, 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 but back in your life, but it's your friend graph. LinkedIn is your professional graph. But the thing about your local graph is that, you know, in in times of duress, for example, like my Facebook friends in Northern Ireland are not coming to save me or even like minor duress. Like if I hurt my back and I need someone to help me pull the bins out, like they're not coming to help. Or if I post, like we see people post things like, hey, I'm on a holiday right now. Will you just keep an eye on the house? Like again, Facebook friends are not going to help me much there. And so I think this generation, I, I kind of worry a lot for that kind of 18 to 24 
where people have gotten really sucked in behind a glass screen. And it's leading to all of these kind of bad outcomes, like more sense of perfectionism in life, right? If you think about Instagram, everyone looks beautiful. Mm. Facebook, everyone's happy with their families. It almost makes people feel even more like, wow, what's wrong with me? So Mm. I think we all could do with getting out of that bubble. And then I think learning that there's this wonderful like pay it forward thing that happens. Like where I started, when you asked me about being entrepreneurial, I at the time felt like I was doing all this good. Look (laughs) at me, I got the jumble sale, I'm raising money. But the reality is you get so much more back when you give. And I think that's something that generationally people may have lost for a period Mm -hmm. of time, but I'm like a total optimist in life. They're not going to lose it for good. And I actually think there's a generation coming up right now that's way more caring about mm. the people around them, the proximity. Mm. Like, look at Greta Thornburg, yeah, right? Mm, just thinking the that. perfect yeah. example. So I think our time is now to have a community platform where people start to really understand the power of what's called weak ties, which is not people you're related to, but actually folks like mm. your neighbors, for example, that really do help you out. And even if you're, you know, I job hopped all, all around the world, right? You know, I, I went from London to, to Joburg, which was a pretty scary city to live in. I, you know, I wish I'd had a platform like next door to say, hey, I love to run. Does anyone want to join a running club? Or, you know, I'd love to meet a couple of women my age. Maybe we could like all hang out because you know, yeah, otherwise there's like dating platforms. And like, yeah. you don't, you're not always wanting to date. Turns out sometimes you just want companionship <laughs> or yeah. friendship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much value. There's almost endless value that yeah. can be yeah. given to a community through a yes. platform like this. Mm. Let's change gear a little. I'd love to talk about women in business, Mm -hmm. women in tech and ladies who launch. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you firstly tell us, you know, as a, as a woman, you know, in a leadership position in Silicon Valley, what's that experience like? Cause there aren't that many Um, and we look to you. So can you tell us what it's like having the eyes on you? Um, so first of all, I try never to think too much about that. I used to in my head, actually, when I was an analyst and I had to like put my hand up to ask a question of Bill Gates or someone and I'd look around the room and it would be all men and me. And so one of the ways I used to get myself brave enough is I would have this thing about like, you're doing this on behalf of all womankind, Sarah. Um, and even when I got around to taking this job at Nextdoor, I was really happy at Square. There was a big part of it was I wanted to create a role model. Like I felt like I couldn't, I talked to all these women all the time about making the leap, take the risk. We need to, you can't be what you can't see. We need women in leadership roles. And so a big part of what got into my own head was doing it for that reason. Now, my husband was a little bit like, that's crazy talk. You will (laughs) drive yourself nuts. No one person can carry that around. Like in the end, just do it for the right reasons, like Mm. do it for you. But I I think a lot of women carry that in them. And Mm. God bless if it's a driving force, like do it. Um, Is it, you know, do you feel like, I, I actually don't feel a lack of of females around me, but that's probably partially because we're building a company that's very 50-50. And so just day-to-day, whether it's my executive team, my board, I'm always interacting with a lot of women. So it doesn't feel like there's some dearth of women around me. Mm. Um, I do get a little frustrated when it's like, um, will you come do this? You know, you're always like, ask a woman. I'm like, are there, (laughs) there clearly are only four of us (laughs) because it's always the same four. And, you know, it's it's an extra weight that men don't carry. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, is that a blessing or a curse? I don't know. I mean, you are able to pay it forward all the time, but it does, it's almost like having a a third job Mm. that's trawling along beside you. So I think we need to be careful about not overly weighing on the women who are doing it to Mm. talk about it too much because they also need to get on and be successful. How have you kind of overcome some of the challenges you've experienced in in that environment, being a female leader? Um, so I would definitely point to the the strength of mentors around you. So having yeah. great people who um, will kind of tell it like it is. So mm. definitely at Goldman, um, back in the day, I had two amazing female mentors and they were brutally honest. Oh my God, like sometimes I'd be like, <laughs> are you really on side? Because like, I don't know if I really needed to hear that. Give me a break. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, so they were always pushing. I've had great male mentors too. Look, yeah. in the end, yeah. like there are amazing men who want to be allies, who will lift you up. Like my board at the moment, like I have Bill Gurley on my board, for example. And then when I was making this really tough decision to go to um, next door, Bill and I actually did this hike up in Tahoe and it was kind of the never ending hike because every time we get to a fork in the road that would bring us home we would like take the further one so we could because he was still trying to persuade me and I was still not sure so we were like walking walking. and walking and walking but that's a great example of someone who was in it to get the best person in the seat Mm. and I didn't feel Mm. like he was weighing on this like oh well you're a woman and we have to have a woman Mm. I think the woman thing was kind of almost like an added bonus because you get diversity of thought and opinion I don't like when people come at it as like you know sometimes I get calls and people are like we're adding to our board and we really want to add a woman I'm like seriously like call me back when you want to add a great person (laughs) like but don't don't call me just because I'm female and telling those stories like Mm. frankly being honest with people when how offensive it can be because sometimes they're just saying it and they don't even realize that's like another way I feel like so men being really truthful and honest about like when people are saying things that are just wrong or off-putting or they don't even realize their own bias. And then it is peer mentorship. Like it's Mm. what you talked about, like the reason you do what you do, which I love Lady Brains, is this power of female um, peer mentorship is huge. Just sharing the the highs and the lows, knowing you're not going mad. Other people are going (laughs) through the same things. Oh, you are going mad, but you're still going through the same (laughs) things. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the power of um, the support group and and learning from each other is Mm -hmm. just it gets you so far, doesn't yeah. it? And I guess that's Big exactly why we started Lady Brains and sort of why you started Ladies Who Launch as well. Exactly right. We're like, what a great meeting yeah, of the yeah, minds yeah. here. Um, yeah. So Ladies Who Launch came out of this idea that as I was meeting with all of these smaller local businesses and entrepreneurs who were just getting going, maybe they had their farmer's market stall, like literally, but they had aspirations to build. There's a woman here in Australia building something called Chai Valley. So it's Chai Tea. Mm. And she is asking aspirational to be like Howard Schultz at Starbucks. He's like, he started with one store and she was starting in literally like a farmer's market. My thing was like, oh my God, like I hear the same stories over and over again. How do I get these women together? And so we came up with this event series with my co-founder, Kelly McGonigal. So she's the event queen. She can throw an (laughs) event for anything. And then I have a Rolodex. I could find great speakers like, you know, a Joe Malone in London. So we started a series. We do it all around the world. We actually have done one in Sydney. Um, but the last three were Denver, Toronto, and Stockholm, just to give you a sense of Amazing. like mm. going back mm-hmm. just even this last year. And it's remarkable. Like we see the same thing around the world. Like those women are looking for community. And so many of them, like in Stockholm, the women were like, 
oh my God, I didn't even realize there were so many women starting businesses. Like we never can find each other. Mm. Um, there's education. So there's the nuts and bolts of how do I do social media marketing? How do, I mean, some of the stuff you've just asked me, like, how do you, how do you grow a company? Like, how do you do paid <laughs> marketing? Um, and then the third piece is this inspiration piece. And this came from actually a dear friend who had worked in big companies. Um, and we were sitting at her dining room table. It's totally cliched. And I was like, how's it going? And she's like, oh my God, it's like so hard. And when I worked for XYZ big company, right, they would have this conference once a year and Oprah would show up and Oprah would tell mm-hmm. you you could run through a wall and then it didn't matter what happened for the next six months because Oprah was with you <laughs> in spirit. And she's like, in it, now at my own business, nothing good ever happens. All I do is sit around and worry and admire the problems. Like there's no inspiration. And I was like, okay, Megan, we are going to fix that. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the third mm-hmm. pillar, if I may, of yeah. Ladies Who Launch. And, you know, it's it's a organization that wants to run and thrive and be bigger. And I'm holding it back because it's my side hustle. Right. So 2020 is the year when we have just hired a CEO and I need to let her run and kind of learn also this, like how you let your baby kind of yeah. take off and recognize, yeah. you know, something we were talking about earlier that I can't be at every event. And if I try to be at every event, we won't not have that many events. And, but it's hard because you also want your brand to stand for something and you want to make sure it doesn't get all kind of torqued and twisted and yeah. so on as it moves away from you. It is interesting, actually, because we've had that conversation between ourselves, but also with a lot of the women in our community who are building brands that they're the face of. Mm-hmm. How do you build a brand beyond just you? Right. Which is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's true for all founders. I've actually had this conversation with Jack many times, too, because so much of, like, Twitter, in a way, is the story of Jack, like, in his bedroom, you know, whatever it was, fiddling around, yep. you know, and hearing the ambulance service talk. Um, it, it's actually more rare that people actually cross that chasm and kind mm. of keep it going. Um, and you know, if you look at how many, even in Silicon Valley, how many companies have started with a founder, the founder kind of moves off a little to the right, and then ultimately the founder is brought back to kind of mm. save the company because you lose that, just that complete passion or whatever, whatever it is, that thing. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have the greatest answer for it. There's, there's actually, um, oh my God, there's like the most amazing movie that is about Dior. So it's wonderful because it's all about couture and yeah. fashion. Love it. But you can watch it as a business person because it's about how can you create a brand like that, which really is about the founder yeah. that then survived generationally. Like mm-hmm. how do they keep the essence of the founder, but constantly modernize it? And couture is probably a lot, but I mean, it's a little bit of a dying art and a kind of a weird concept, but mm. it's a little bit like technology in a way of like, how do you create the next trend, yep. mega trend that you then build a business on without losing the spirit of, of why you created the company? So I think another barrier that women face uh, in business, you know, obviously that we talked about uh, lack of access to networks, communities. Um, the other one is lack of access to funding and to money, capital. Yes. capital. Yeah. You're the perfect person to ask this question. <laughs> What's some advice that you would give, you know, women yeah. that have businesses that are looking to raise capital? Yeah. So it is it is the thing that as I've gone around the world that frustrates me most mm. is how hard, how much harder it is for women to raise money. Um, and just the the eternal iterations investors put them through. It's always like, well, I would love to see this cohort analysis or whatever. And like guys, I mean, I literally have conversations with guys where they're like, I was like, how was that series A? Wow, you raised $20 million. I'm like, yeah, it just happened so fast. It happened oh like God. a month. Um, it drives me <laughs> mental. Um 
Look, I think the advice I have is, first of all, people invest in people. They don't Mm. invest in a thing. They Mm. don't actually invest in a company. They invest in you. And so if you are leading that fundraise, so first of all, decide up front, are you leading it or is it your, do you have a CFO or whatever? But in reality, if you are the, the builder and the entrepreneur, they're investing in you. So you're the one that's doing the selling. Um, second, that means you need to be really on top of what your pitch is. Mm-hmm. And they, they find, the thing I find women often do is they're in the meeting. It's like crescendoing. And that's the moment where they should make the ask. And they don't. I'll be like, did you like, did you ask them like for money? Like, or they get asked like, okay, that's this all sounds really interesting. How much are you raising and what's your valuation? And they, you know, they come out of the meeting and they call me and they're like, oh my God, I totally, like I, I, I fumbled. I didn't have an answer. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't have an answer? We practiced this, but you need to know exactly what your response is. Like deadpan. Right. And you don't like just say it and, and then zip it. Like, just, just leave with the investor to respond to you. But don't like, don't say things like we are raising, like when I went out on the road for next door, most recently, you know, it was like, what are you doing? We're raising a hundred million dollars. Great. What's your valuation? Two billion. Um, how did you get there? Okay. Here's what our revenue is. Here's what I think a reasonable multiple is. Boom. And you know, it's their, it's their job actually to decide if that's reasonable. But I find a lot of women will say all that, like, and then they'll be like, but, you know, but if you, but if you really, but you know, if we only want to do 50 and we could do it, you know, and I'm like, shh, 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 quiet, Um, leave, like force yourself to leave, hang up and then don't even return the first couple of calls. Like you got to, there's got to be a little tension in the system of like, you know, that, that you're so busy because so many people are inbounding to be in your round um, that you got to create, I mean, it's, you got to create a market around it. Now it's super hard. I was telling my team this the other night or a couple of folks from my team, they were asking me what's the hardest thing in my first year. And I said, you know, in that fundraise, looking back, so hundred million at 2 billion, we raised a hundred. 170 million at 2 billion. Um, so it was an amazing, you look back on it and you're like, wow, an amazing outcome. I mean, the reality was we kicked off that fundraising in the beginning of January. I was totally gung ho that we would be done by the end of Q1. So that gave me two mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. In April, I was on spring break with my family and my husband walked into the hotel room and I was like in this, like almost like, please come into the round. Like, and I hung up and I like literally was almost, I was like crying and don't tell anyone, but I was literally crying. Um, and he was like, whoa, that's not going so well. I thought it was going really well. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm the eternal optimist and I'm telling you it's going well, but it's not. And then, you know, it must've been a week later that the lead was like, I'm in. And the minute you get the lead, then all the other investors pile in behind. Right. But I think it goes back to like the sharing of the the ups and the downs. Yeah. Like most people might see me talking about our $170 million round and our 2.2 valuation. They're like, oh my God, like it's like magical. And it's not like on the back end, it's blood, sweat and tears, but it's being sure of your story, realizing people are investing in you, mm-hmm. being really clear with your ask. Um, and then now it's just follow through. And look, there were people that came into that round that in some ways I've been cultivating for maybe a decade plus of my career. So right. don't take no as no. Yep. No is just not right now. Yep. Yeah. Um, and keep, you know, those conversations and those relationships warm, like always just Mm. when you have a good piece of business data, just shoot it out to a few people and said, hey, we haven't spoken for a year, but I was just thinking about you. I don't know if you noticed, but my company just hit this milestone. You know, it just seemed really relevant. And you're not making any ask of them in that moment, but it's like when you finally do come back around, 
they're kind of caught up and up to date. So there's a lot of just remembering to endlessly kind of keep the plate spinning. Mm. It's the breadcrumbing, isn't it? It's yes. just, you know, it's dropping exactly breadcrumbs right. over a long time yeah. and providing mm. little tidbits of value. It's exactly right. In front of mind. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. being okay with the no's, you know, it'll come back around. People will eventually totally say yes. Okay with the no's. Yeah, just pick yourself up and keep on going. There's like a great Winston Churchill quote that says, when you're going through hell, keep on going. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's how I think about fundraising. Yeah. Just keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Put your armor on. <laughs> yeah, I think a no, like we were talking about this yesterday, and saying no to something or accepting a no is saying yes to something else. So yeah. if it's a no from this investor, that could mean it's a yes from somebody else. So it's just kind of that mindset shift. Yeah. And I guess, you know, going in there and being strong with your ask and, and being really confident in what you're going after, that would be an a muscle, I guess you would exercise. The first time it might be quite hard, but then the second time it's easier and then you just kind of become practiced Mm. at it. There's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of it. Like if you seem really confident, like you give people confidence on the other side. Like one of my earliest... like career moments. I remember walking in, I, re- I worked for this guy at Goldman who was like kind of super curmudgeonly. He was like the head of the tech group. Everyone's kind of terrified of him. And I said to another woman, like, how do you handle him? And he's, she said, he's like a mirror. If you walk in confident, upbeat, kind of cheerful, he is confident, upbeat and cheerful right back at you. Mm. And if you walk in kind of a little uncertain, unsure, he will come across as like really standoffish and like he's not sure about you now. Mm-hmm. And that was like, such a great piece of advice. And I think about that a lot anytime I'm entering any yes, room yes. is like, what do I want reflected back? Yes, and yeah. so do a little kind of power poses in the bathroom, whatever it is that you need. <laughs> yeah, well, we do. We mirror each other's behavior, don't yes, we? big yep. time. So just one final question on that. How do you overcome any doubt or imposter syndrome mm-hmm. in those moments? Because, I mean, do, firstly, do you experience that? Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. And then what do you tell yourself? I mean, I think it comes back to, so yeah, first of all, I think everyone, I mean, I I don't know, I certainly don't know any women that don't experience imposter syndrome. So it is a completely natural state of mind. Now, crazily, I I have seen like someone's really quick, like witty remark off it was, um, you know, fundraising is a hundred times harder for me. Um, I walk into a room, I'm the only person in the room. She listed out all of these things and she said, so I'm certainly not the imposter here. (laughs) Like, why would I think that I'm the imposter when I've had to work X amount harder just to get close to where you're at? (laughs) On the other side of it, like, how do you get through it? This comes back to like mission and purpose. Like Mm. when I, when that, you know, in the middle of that fundraising round, I kept reminding myself, look, every time I go see a, a neighborhood, see a community, see something that has happened that's amazing on our platform where we've literally changed someone's life for the better, changed someone's community for the better. I mean, that's the, that's the powerful thing that keeps you going. You put your head on the pillow at night. You're like, we've done one good thing in the world. Um, I sometimes journal a little, um, Mm. not as much as like, you know, the world is always telling you should do these things. But um, (laughs) I find like sometimes I journal my fears and my concerns at a moment in time and it's helpful to go back. And so I, I, maybe it's like, once a month, once every two months. So Mm -hmm, like I'm not a major journaler, but I go back and when I look at what I was worried about a year ago or two years ago, it's great perspective that Mm. actually time moves on, you do solve those problems or you kind of find another way around them to your Mm. point, like a no is just a yes in disguise going a different direction. And it's just a great sense of perspective. So something I feel I probably should do more of because I actually find it quite powerful. We have two final questions for you. So um, I did a bit of stalking. I was on Twitter, <laughs> scrolling back, back, back. I apologize. Oh, God. 
I dread to think. And I found a few screenshots um, and they were of an email that Jack had sent oh, yeah. you when you left Square um, mm-hmm. and he he left you with some, uh, some advice, mm-hmm. you know, upon your departure. One of those was to allow yourself to fail in public. He said in order to be more creative, take more risks and question the traditional path, it's all made possible through the act of failing and failing in front mm-hmm. of others. How are you going with failure? <laughs> Have you made friends with that? Yeah. Um, so it was a very perfect piece of advice for me, Miss Perfect over here, right? That's yeah. why he gave it. It was not, um, it's not like Jack just has three things that mm. he tells everyone. That's why I It was I very really, personalized. It was a beautiful email. It was a yeah. beautiful email from a someone I count as a dear, dear friend. I would say I'm getting slightly better, but I am still not very good at it. So <laughs> I do, I mean, I've just had it since I was born, this like, so it's much pleaser because like I, I have always been pretty independent. Like if you talk to my parents, like I was, I see it actually in my daughter now. She has this wonderful independence where she's not trying to, like sometimes I'm like, do you want to, should we do something at the weekend with your friends or whatever? And she's like, oh, I just, I'm going to take my camera out and go take photographs. Like she, it, it can feel like almost a loner characteristic, mm-hmm. but I think I view it as a very independent characteristic. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways that's not a pleaser characteristic, but I did always want to be the best at things. And that's kind of to me where the perfectionist gene would jump in. Um, so I, am I getting better at it? I think I'm more inclined to tell the company and the people around me when I've kind of totally screwed up and to just be, you know, in the moment, very real about it. Like in Silicon Valley companies in particular, I think, you know, it's it's completely rational and reasonable that everyone can talk to the CEO. Like I feel like my first job, the idea of I would have talked to like the CEO of the company, I would have like had a heart attack. And But today it's like everyone has a point of view. Yeah. And there's sometimes like someone said, I like stood at the front of the company. We have an all hands every Friday, and I'd made a comment about how our country was being governed and, or something. Mm-hmm. And they took it like they they were kind of really pissed off because they said I'd kind of demeaned a little people who'd given service to our mm-hmm. country, which was not at all. I definitely know what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. And you know, the next week I just stood up and I said. You know, I totally screwed up because, like, I realize now I was thought I was being like witty and funny, and actually I shouldn't be joking about that sort of subject. So I really messed up, and I'm really sorry. Um, and you should totally take me to task on things like that. Mm. And I think just more of that yeah, authenticity great. of like the, there will be big things you really screw up on, but I actually think it's more in the smaller things mm. that you're just honest on the why. Yeah. Um, and you know, the thing that seems like a big deal to them you hadn't taken a serious life. So I'm probably better at some of that. I do need to get better and better, I think, at the like the big leap risk out there mm. that if I mess it up, mm. like we'll we'll come back You'll and fix it. it and mm. you know, actually as I see neighbors, I say that all the time. I'm like, look, we are going to get things wrong at next door. You can kind of see social media feels like it's just walking through like a landmine zone at the moment. <laughs> like people are just shooting themselves in the foot left, right, and center. So no doubt our time will come. So I wanna kind of fill the bucket right now and authentically tell you while we're not shooting ourselves in the foot that when that day comes I'm going to put her hand up and be like we got it wrong but stick with us because we genuinely want to get it right. Um, so we have spoken a little bit about this but at Lady Brains we really believe that you can't do it alone. There is so much power in your network. Yes. So we would love to know from you who has been one really pivotal person um, that has played a huge role in your career? Um Gosh, there, there's actually a lot, but since we're wrapping it up, I will pick one. I'm going to do my shout out to Mary Meeker because we just talked about funding and Mary's new fund bond came into next door. But the reason why I find Mary so pivotal, so 
Back in the day when I first came to Silicon Valley and I was like a young bright spark at Stanford, um, Mary was the queen of the net. So she had been anointed queen of the net by, Mm -hmm. I think it was Barron's or Bloomberg or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was going into the finance industry and going back to that point, you can't be what you can't see. I actually could look up and see this woman who was wildly successful. And she was wildly successful because she was so freaking good at what she did. Like she beat everyone out. Um, She picked the best stock. She picked the best trends. She does all that work. And I mean, and today now internet trends is its own amazing trend. Everyone looks Mm. forward to it every year. But then I got to know Mary, which is such a gift, um, working at Square, where she sat on our board at Square. And then I really got to know Mary because we actually like played golf together and she's a brilliant (laughs) golfer. And I am, I am a golfer that plays two to three times a year. Uh, (laughs) And I just find her so incredibly loyal, smart, thoughtful. She, you know, I'll get 20 texts because she's selling something on behalf of Nextdoor. <laughs> and then I'll get some meta text about like, what do I think is going to happen with artificial intelligence in the world? Right. So she's like going from all these levels. So I find mentally she really pushes me. Mm. But in just getting to see Mary in real life, so not just in a business context, amongst her friends, the thing they always say is how loyal Mary is. Mm. And I really appreciate that in my friendship with her. So she's probably the one I think has had the most mega impact. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, I want to be part of Lady Brains. It's such a great organization. You are in. You're in. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Hey, Anna here. We just finished recording with Sarah and to be honest, we're still kind of blown away by the chat. There's just so much to unpack. We found her advice about raising capital really useful actually, especially as we consider starting that process for Lady Brains. She reminded us that establishing investor relationships takes quite a lot of time and the best way to build them is using the breadcrumbing technique to continuously stay front of mind. And also, she reminded us to go into your investor meeting, ask the ask and then shut up. Don't backtrack, don't ad-lib, just wait for them to respond. We were also really inspired by how mission-driven she was and that it's not only possible, but it's essential to build purpose into your business. Also, I don't know about you, but we found it really comforting to know that even one of the top CEOs in Silicon Valley feels imposter syndrome at times. It's totally normal. We all get it. We just need to find our own way to gain perspective. For her, it was journaling, but for you, it might be something totally different. You know the drill. Come across to ladybrains.com.au to continue the conversation and find out more info about the podcast and events. Ladyland is a Podcast One Australia production. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic. 